Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, why don't you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We'll let you get kind of a head start on this, um, on the scripture that we'll first go to. You know, the um, uh, we've been teaching healing here ever since uh, we started the church in January of 1986. That's 30 and a half years ago now when we started the church. And those of you that uh, are familiar with me and the ministry, the, our ministry background, know that uh, we worked with Brother Hagen for a number of years before that. And healing was a, a, a very, very significant part of the ministry that God had given him. So all told, uh, I've been involved in uh, the healing ministry, which you might call the healing ministry, for about 35 years. And in those 35 years, we've seen scores of people healed, most of them healed by, on their own faith, some healed through the laying on of hands and uh, other means as well. But the, the number one thing that I've found is what I've read after others who were in the healing ministry for a longer period than me many years before I ever got started. And that is the number one hindrance, the number one roadblock to people being healed or receiving their healing is uncertainty about whether or not it's God's will to heal them. That is far and away the number one issue when it comes to receiving healing. No matter what you need healing from, whether it's a small thing or whether it's a uh, major sickness or disease or whatever, it's always the number one thing. Now, Jesus told us that the devil is a liar and he's the father of lies. And for 6,000 years, the devil has been lying to mankind in much the same way as he did in the Garden of Eden, and that is to question the truth of God's Word. You remember the first thing, or one of the first things that the devil said to, uh, to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he, made, he questioned her, he said, has God said? Well, that's always been the issue for the devil. That's all he's got, is to question the truthfulness or the integrity of God's Word. Now, uh, did you turn to uh, Acts chapter 10? Did you get there yet? In the early days of the church, we don't know exactly how long between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10, but most people uh, estimate it as somewhere between 8 and 10 years. Now, remember that Jesus, when he first was risen from the dead, he appeared to the disciples and he told them what to do. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, I'll be with you to the ends of the world. But he told them to preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So eight or ten years later, they haven't even gotten out of Jerusalem. I'm sure they meant well. I'm sure they intended to obey whatever Jesus told them to do. But they have not gone into the world. But there's a very significant thing that happened in Acts chapter 10 that we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 10 that dealt with an issue that... Um, well, it's an eternal issue, and it's an issue that has to do with people receiving their healing today. See, in, in their day, they had a real question, legitimate question, about whether or not salvation, the work of Jesus on the cross, I mean that uh, when I use the word salvation, I'm not talking about forgiveness of sins. I'm not talking about salvation the way the modern-day church talks about salvation. Modern-day church says that Jesus died for our sins, and that's as far as they go. But salvation is spoken of in the Scripture as a total package. Isaiah 53 describes the salvation work of Jesus on the cross. And it says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, well-being in every area, including finances, was upon him. And with his stripes were healed. That's a total package. So the work of Jesus on the cross, according to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, tells us that Jesus sacrificed himself. For man to be free from the work of the devil in every area, spirit, soul, and body. That's what I mean when I say salvation. Well, their question, meaning the early church, their question is, who is salvation for? They know that the law of Moses was written, and God said in the Old Testament that he was, or Jesus even said when he was here on the earth, that he was sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There were times where he ministered to the Gentiles and there were things that he said about the Gentiles coming to him and so forth. But the Jews, the early Christians, all of whom were of Jewish background, Jewish heritage, Jewish customs and so forth, 
they're stuck in Jerusalem because that's where the Jews are. So something happens in Acts chapter 10 where God makes his will and plan and purpose known that's significant for us as well. You remember the story about how that Peter was waiting for lunch to get ready and he went up on the housetop to pray. And while he was there waiting for lunch to be prepared, the Bible says he fell into a trance and he had a vision. And in this vision, he saw a, a, like it was a giant sheet let down by the four corners from heaven. And in it, it had all kinds of animals in it, some clean, some unclean. And there was a voice in the vision that he ascertained to be the Lord Jesus himself. They said, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter argued with that because his custom was to still follow the law of Moses. You couldn't eat anything unclean. Everything that the law of Moses determined or uh, identified as unclean was still unclean as far as he was concerned. So the voice said, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a good follower of the law of Moses, and I'm not going to change that now. And it's, the Bible says that the voice answered back, Jesus answered back and said, don't call unclean what I have cleansed or don't call common what I have cleansed. In other words, Jesus was trying to make a point to Peter that there was something about God's plan and God's purpose that went beyond his custom as established by the law of Moses. Well, the Bible says this happened three times and then it disappeared. The vision ended. And at that time, there was somebody that had come from Cornelius' house because Cornelius the day before had seen a vision of an angel who told him to send to a certain place for Peter who would tell him words whereby he and his household would be saved. Well, Cornelius is a Gentile, so he obeys what the angel tells him to do. So just at the time that Peter's vision ended and he's trying to figure out what this vision means, These men from Cornelius' house come, and the Holy Spirit has to direct Peter. He has to alter his thinking. He says, go with them, doubting nothing. In other words, don't ask any questions. You just go with them. I don't know that Peter would have gone with them otherwise, because it was contrary to the law of Moses to associate with Gentiles. They were considered to be unclean people, just like they were unclean animals. And so Peter finally obeys. He gets to Cornelius' house the next day. Cornelius relates the vision to him about what he saw the angel, how he saw the angel, what the angel said, and so forth. Now let's pick up in Acts chapter 10 in verse, uh, I believe it's verse 34. Yeah. Peter says, Peter opened his mouth after hearing that the Gentiles, this one Gentile, Cornelius, has had a vision from the Lord, direction, supernatural direction, about going to get Peter and bringing him down so that Peter can preach salvation to him, the finished work of Jesus. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now I want you to notice what Peter has ascertained out of this whole supernatural experience, actually several supernatural experiences. His vision, Cornelius' vision, and being sent by the Holy Ghost and directed and so forth. Peter says, I finally figured something out here. God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. Folks, that is one of the greatest revelations that the church ever received. That what Jesus did for the Jew, Jesus did for the Gentiles also. Up until that point in time, there was legitimate doubt, legitimate question about whether or not the finished work of Jesus was for anybody other than a Jew, or if the Gentiles first had to become Jews and then they could get saved. But this supernatural experience that God has orchestrated in a miraculous way is to identify to, the, to mankind one important point, and that is what Jesus did for one person, Jesus has done for every person. Notice what he said. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. If you look this up in other translations, it says God doesn't play favorites. It says that God is not one to show partiality. Or that God deals with everybody exactly the same way. Which is exactly what it means. 
God is no respecter of persons. Notice what it says next. It says, but in every nation. Now, see, their issue is Jews versus Gentiles. But in every nation, we might say in every circumstance, in every situation. We're not divided so much by nationalities like they were, Jews and Gentiles. But we're divided by other things. The devil tells you that there are reasons why healing is not for you. There are reasons why the blessings of God don't belong to you. Yeah, sure, they belong to other people, and we know that God's done great things for them. But you know about your situation. So notice he said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but that in every nation, every circumstance, every situation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Do you know what that means? That means Paul is saying, I'm understanding now by the Holy Ghost, by the work of the Holy Ghost, this miraculous way that God has dealt with me in in this situation. He said, I'm coming to realize that God will receive anybody that meets his conditions. Now, fearing him and working righteousness just simply comes down to one thing. That is belief. The conditions for receiving anything and everything from God is faith. So Paul, um, uh, what's his name? Peter is serious. They're specifically saying, he's using flowery words to say it, but he's specifically saying, I've come to realize that God treats everybody the same if he can find somebody that'll believe. Because that is the only condition. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The only condition there is is to believe. The condition for salvation is to believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead and confess him as Lord with your mouth. That's the condition for receiving the finished work of Jesus, any and every part of it. So Peter is saying, here's what I've come to understand. It's not about whether or not you were born a Jew or born a Gentile, or have to cross some racial lines, some national lines, some gender lines, or whatever else. It's not about anything except meeting God's conditions. And the Bible spells that out to be one condition, and that is the condition of faith. He's saying that God will treat everybody the same who believes. Who believes. Notice he doesn't talk about somebody being worthy. He talks about working righteousness, but how do we work righteousness? Through faith. How do we fear God? Through faith. We put his word first. These are the conditions of faith. But the devil wants to attach everything else in the world to it. He wants to tell you that you've been too bad for God to do something for you. Yeah, it would belong to you, but you've messed up so many times. How do we overcome the mistakes that we've made and the sins that we've committed? Faith. You overcome every work of the enemy. You overcome every work of um, mistake in your past, every transgression. You overcome everything by one simple requirement, and that's faith. To believe that Jesus paid the price and to accept it not on your own works, but because Jesus said he did it for you. Then Peter goes on to say a lot of other things here. Let's read it real quickly. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word I say you know which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed. Now notice what he connects with God is no respecter of persons if he can find somebody that meets his requirement of faith. Notice what he connects with that. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. How many did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil. What does that mean? That means Jesus healed everybody that came to him for healing. You can't find one instance where Jesus ever turned anybody away. Now, you can find some some instances where people didn't receive The Bible talks about in John chapter 5 where at the pool of Bethesda there were five porches full of sick people and halt and lame and impotent and there was only one person that got healed. 
Jesus didn't just indiscriminately go around and, and heal everybody that was sick. But he did heal everybody that, came, that was sick that came to him for healing. The point is not, did everybody in the world that was sick get healed when Jesus was here? The point is, did God ever turn anybody away that came to him? Can you see the distinction? That's huge, folks. Jesus never turned anybody away. Jesus, who came to reveal the will of the Father, never turned anybody away that came for healing. And in some cases, he had to work on their faith to get them to a place where they could receive. But he was still willing to do that. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good. Thank God healing is good. He went about doing good and healing. He went about doing good and healing. He went about doing good and healing. Now, some in the church will tell you that it's good for you to be sick because God's trying to teach you something. Well, folks, if sickness is ever good, then healing can't be. If there's ever a purpose for sickness, a purpose to be used by God regarding sickness, then healing can't be good. Because at least in one case... At least in one situation, healing would be contrary, according to many's thinking, healing would be contrary to God's plan for you to be sick. Well, then healing couldn't be good if it's against God's will. There's only one explanation or one conclusion that we could draw how healing could always be good. And remember, the Bible says that God never changes. God is good. Every good and perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That means healing can't sometimes be good and sometimes be bad. We know it's from God because Jesus performed them. We know that it's part of God's plan and his will because Jesus revealed it to us when he was here on the earth through his actions. So the only conclusion we can draw is that the only way for healing to be good is for sickness to always be bad. Now that may sound elementary, but that'll destroy one of the lies of the devil. Now notice what it says. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing. Who did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil. That means every person in Jesus' ministry of the 19 individual cases of healing that are reflected in or recorded in the four gospels, not including the multitudes, not including the groups like the 10 lepers and so forth, but of the individuals, individual healing events that the four gospels tell us about, there are 19 of them. Every one of those were sick because of the devil's work, not because of God's. Now, I know that cuts crossways with what some churches teach concerning John chapter 9. John chapter 9 tells the story about how Jesus came upon, or the disciples in Jesus, came upon a man that was born blind. And the disciples asked his question. They said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither one. It wasn't personal sin that brought this man's condition. It wasn't family sin that brought this man's condition. Well, they, the disciples were right about one thing. Sin was the cause. It just wasn't their sins. Well, whose sin was it that, brought, that opened the door and brought this upon mankind? Adam and Eve's. And then Jesus goes so far as to say, neither is this man's sin nor his parents, but that I might work the works of him that sent me. I must work when it's day. The night cometh when no man can work. Well, what was the work of God in this situation? To make the man blind? Nope. The work that Jesus did was to heal the man. Now, if as some churches teach, this man was born blind so that Jesus would have somebody to heal, then that would mean that Jesus is working contrary to the will of God, who in their thinking wants this man blind. Jesus is working against the will of God to heal him. Well, that can't be right. That'd make Jesus a sinner. Any action against the contrary to or against the will of God is sin. Was Jesus a sinner or not? Of course not. Then he's not working contrary to the will of God, meaning it can't be God's will for this man to be sick. 
That goes back to, to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus heals the man. He shows what God's will is. He doesn't have to pray. He doesn't have to say, okay, now, Father, I know you wanted him blind for all these years, but now I want to heal him. So change your will. How's that possible? God never changes. If it was ever God's will for that man to be blind, it would always be God's will for that man to be blind. Thank God that's not what his will is. It was God's will for Jesus to perform the miracle of healing because it's always God's will for us to be well. God did not create sickness. Sickness is nowhere to be found in the first six days of creation when God looked at it and said, it's very good. That's part of the reason it's very good because there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. God didn't create sickness. Sickness is a perversion of divine health. It came as a result of sin entering into the earth. Romans 5.12 tells us that. Wherefore, as by one man sin, death entered the world. But I'm, I'm messing it up. Let me, let me get it and read it rather than quote it incorrectly. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Sickness is part of spiritual death. It's part of the consequence of spiritual death that came as a result of Adam's sin. God didn't create it. So Jesus heals the man to do the works of the Father. He shows us what God's will is by healing him. And that would have to be the case with everybody that Jesus ministered healing to. Because when Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost in power... And went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. It tells you where sickness comes from. Sickness is satanic oppression. Why did he do that? Because God was with him. He goes further and says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. And to him give all the prophets witness, talking about the law of Moses, the prophets, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And notice that last phrase, whosoever believeth in him, not Jews versus Gentiles, whosoever believes in him. Now that goes back to his qualifications over in verse 35. But in every nation, God has no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. How do you fear him and how do you work righteousness? Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. In other words, as soon as Peter preaches Jesus And faith in Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and faith in Jesus' resurrection. The Holy Ghost is poured out, and they receive everything that they have need of that Jesus accomplished through his sacrifice. I am well satisfied that if anybody had been sick in that crowd, they would have been healed as well. But it was a small group gathered in Cornelius' house. Apparently, there was nobody sick there. But what I want you to see is, as soon as they heard the gospel... As soon as they believed what Peter preached, they received the entirety of what Jesus had accomplished on the cross according to their need. Now, Peter goes further than their need, apparently. He preaches not only the work of Jesus on the cross, but the healing ministry of Jesus here on the earth to reveal God's plan and purpose for mankind. So Peter has the understanding that healing is a part of what Jesus paid the price for too. 
Are you out there? Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 8. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Let's look at some other witnesses. We see Peter's witness. And we can look at some other examples of him as well. Acts chapter 8 tells us about Philip. Let's see what Philip says. Notice beginning in verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And then it tells us about a certain one named Simon. He was a sorcerer and he put himself off as some great power. Apparently had a lot of people hoodwinked about his power or his abilities or whatever. But notice in verse 12 it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. So notice what Philip does. Philip preaches Christ and then it identifies specifically that what that means is he's preaching things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Would we not have to conclude that he's talking about Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead? Would we not have to conclude when the Bible says that he preached things concerning the kingdom of God? He's talking about the resurrection power of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus being alive at the right hand of the father. Everybody would agree to that, wouldn't they? And notice what the result is. When Philip preaches Jesus, healings and deliverances take place. Now, how would that be possible if healing and deliverance was not part of what Jesus sacrificed himself for? How is that possible if it was not part of, if healing and deliverance was not part of what Jesus died on the cross for us to receive? It wouldn't be. If forgiveness of sins is all there is in what Jesus did on the cross, then there's no way anybody would have been delivered from unclean spirits or healed from the sickness and disease. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You couldn't have faith to receive any of those things unless that was part of what Philip preached. You don't get faith for healing by hearing preaching on water baptism or forgiveness of sins. You have faith for healing by hearing preaching on Jesus dying for your well-being, your physical well-being. So here's one witness or another witness, really. We've got Peter's witness, but we haven't seen healing out of him yet. But we have seen him preaching healing. Now we've got Philip preaching healing and having people re- having healing results. Look with me over to uh, Acts chapter 5. Let's look at Peter for another example here. Acts chapter 5 tells us about how that... that uh, Well, we'll just start reading in verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. Now, how could believers be added to the Lord? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that we can't believe without hearing preaching. We can't hear preaching unless a preacher is sent. So for believers to be added to the Lord, it's got to be talking about preaching the word. It's got to be talking about preaching Jesus. Now, if you'll remember the previous chapters, chapters 3 and 4, chapter 3 tells us about a healing miracle that took place outside the temple at the beautiful gate of the temple. You remember Peter and John were going in at a time of prayer, and there was a crippled man that had been there, laid daily at the gate, day after day, year after year. And Peter said, look on us. And the man expected to receive something of him. He's certainly looking for money. He's begging for money. So I'm sure that's what he expected to receive. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And immediately his ankle bones received strength and he leaped up and walked and praised God. Everybody in the temple saw it. Well, the religious leaders see the stir taking place in the temple. And so they take Peter and John captive and they call them to question about this. They said, by what power or by what name have you done this great work? 
Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said, Be it known among you that by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, this man stands before you whole. And they threatened him. They commanded him not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 4, when they get back to their own company after they've been beaten, they report to their own company what the chief priests and elders had said. And notice their prayer. Let me read this to you. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse... uh, Well, I don't want to read the whole thing. Let's start reading in verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Do they have any plans to stop preaching Jesus? Do they have any plans to stop preaching Jesus' power, the power in Jesus' name? Do they have any plans to stop preaching healing? Certainly not. They recognize that as a significant and even a critical part of the work that they have to do to reach others. So over again in chapter 5 where it says, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. They've got to be preaching Jesus raised from the dead. They've got to be preaching Jesus crucified. They've got to be preaching the salvation package, the entirety of the work of God that was accomplished through Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. How do we know? Verse 15. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into streets, into the streets, and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Most didn't say some of them were healed. It says they were healed every one. So what do we see out of Peter's testimony? Well, Peter's witness is the same as Philip's. He has to be preaching healing. He has to be preaching the finished work of Jesus. He has to be preaching the salvation package because that's what faith has produced. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If people are receiving healing, then they're required to receive on their own faith just like you and I are. So that tells us that they have to hear preaching on healing in order for faith for healing to be produced. So we've got two witnesses. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 14. We could show another witness over in Acts chapter 9 where Peter is concerned. He speaks to Aeneas. And he says unto him, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Literally, Jesus Christ healed thee. And Aeneas was healed from his palsy. Acts chapter 14 tells us Paul's witness. Here's the third witness. Paul's in the city of Lystra and uh, in the region of Lystra and Derby, the cities of Lyconia. And in that region, verse 7 of Acts chapter 14, it says, And there they preached the gospel. Now, folks, I want you to understand that the Bible identifies what the gospel is. And it's a lot different from what the modern day church says it is. And there they preached the gospel. Well, these are words inspired by the Holy Ghost given through or spoken through the, the uh, Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts. So when the Holy Ghost calls it the gospel, I'm inclined to think that he knows what it's supposed to be. Now, I know a lot of theologians won't agree, but I'm going to stick with what the Holy Ghost said. Amen? And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak. Please notice that phrase. The same, the crippled man, heard Paul speak. Romans ten seventeen again, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Well, what did Paul speak? Well, it's already been identified as the gospel, but we're going to see what the gospel entails by seeing the results that, that come forth. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, Paul steadfastly beheld the guy, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Now, how can the guy have faith to be healed if he hadn't heard Paul preaching on healing? It's impossible. If Paul's preaching forgiveness of sins, he could have faith to be saved, faith to to be redeemed from sin, but he wouldn't have faith to be healed. There's only one possible explanation according to the Bible. If the Bible is true, 
then there's only one possible explanation for how the man got faith to be healed, and that is he heard uh, Paul preach that Jesus died not only for your sins, but also for your physical well-being and healing. The same heard Paul speak, who, Paul steadfastly beholding him, the cripple, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. He leaped and walked. What healed the man? Faith in the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and paying the price for sickness and disease. Remember what Peter said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Folks, here's the very simple truth. If God ever healed anybody, he's obligated to heal you and me. But I want to be careful about how I say that because it is a legal contractual obligation that God has. Because if God favors somebody over somebody else, then what Peter said about God being no respecter of persons would be a lie. If that one scripture is untrue, that one verse is untrue, then how do you know which verses to trust? It's either got to all be true or all be untrue. There's no middle ground. Thank God it's true. God is no respecter of persons. So that means that God is legally obligated to do the same work of healing for one that he does another. What is that work of healing? He sent Jesus to pay the price for it. But as I said, I want to be careful that I don't leave it just as an impersonal, legal, contractual obligation. What it's showing is God wants you to be well because he loves you just as much as others that have received their healing. Let me show you one final thing. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 tells us about the Passover experience. It's God's giving instruction to Moses, who then turns around and gives it to the people about um, how to perform the Passover. You remember at this point in time, Israel is in bondage to the Egyptians and have been for 400 years, well, really 430 years. First 30 years, they were uh, um, not prisoners they weren't treated like slaves that was during the time of joseph but then for 400 years the next 400 years they were treated as slaves kept as slaves and this is the last thing that happens as they are being delivered from the bondage of egypt which is a type of the the uh, sinner being saved and coming out of the bondage of spiritual death so i want to start reading in verse 12 or i'm sorry chapter 12 verse 3 it says, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it upon the two side posts and upon the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now notice verse 9. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water. That means don't make stew out of it. But roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the puritanence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. Notice he's saying this is the way to do it. Now the Bible says, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, Christ is our Passover slain for us. So the Passover is a type of Jesus, a type of the work that Jesus accomplished and fulfilled on the cross. So these things point to Jesus. 
This is specifically instruction for the Jews of the Old Testament, but it has significance for what Jesus has done for us. So notice in verse 11, it says, And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded and your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And then he goes forward and says, Because I'm going to pass through and take the firstborn, the life of the firstborn of anybody in whose house doesn't have the blood on the doorpost. Now what I want you to see is verse 11. He gives them instruction of how to eat it. And in so doing, he shows the purpose for it. In other words, what I'm trying to say is he's telling them that the blood is to cover them, protect them from the the angel of death that comes through and takes the life of the firstborn of each household. But that's not what the lamb is for. The lamb provides the blood, certainly. But there's a benefit that comes from eating the lamb. It's for the strengths, their strengths, for the journey that they're going to be on. Now, what journey are they going to take? They're going to take the journey to the promised land. And it's intended for them, the strength of their journey in the promised land. In other words, it's a type of the Christian life. It's a type of the Christian walk into God's plan for you, out from the bondage of the enemy, into salvation, and into God's plan for your life. Now, the question is very simply this. If God wanted them to have strength for their journey to walk a physical walk to the promised land, and his intent was for them to to take possession of the promised land, why would he not want you to have strength for your journey as a believer? Look with me over to Psalm 105, verse 37. The Bible tells us what the result of this was. Psalm 105, verse 37, it says, And he brought them forth also with silver and gold. Do you remember that story? How they went to their neighbors. And literally, it says borrowed, but King James says borrowed. But literally, they demanded payment for the 400 years of slavery. Spoiled the Egyptians. He brought them forth also with silver and gold. And there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now, the word feeble would mean weak or sickly. Now, how do you get multiplied millions of people, and the numbers vary from 2 to 7 million people generally, that are estimated for the count of the number of Israelites that came out of Egypt? How do you get 2 to 7 million people and not have anybody sick in there? That sounds pretty miraculous to me. How about you? Because slaves are not known to be the, the healthiest the strongest people of a nation, are they? They're certainly not the most well cared for. They have to serve their masters as Israel had to serve the Egyptians. And then they have to forage for themselves and take care of themselves because the masters don't care much whether they live or die. They'll replace them if they die, put somebody else in in their spot. So how do you get 2 to 7 million people? And I don't care which number you pick. If you want to be conservative, say 2 million people. How do you get 2 million people and not have anybody sick in the crowd? Folks, the answer is very simple. Healing came through the eating of the lamb. I think I can prove it to you. At least it satisfies me. Exodus chapter 15 Tells us that when they come out of Egypt, go through the Red Sea, Israel is saved, Egypt is destroyed. I'm in the wrong chapter, hold on. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. It says, So Moses brought forth Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to a place called Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Now this is a type of the cross of Jesus. 
Bible says everything that happened to Israel in the Old Testament was for our admonition as a type or a shadow. It stands or represents something else. So here's something that represents the tree or the cross cast into the waters of mankind. So he showed him a tree. The Lord showed him a tree. And when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made them for them a statute and an ordinance and he proved them. And he said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ears to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians. That's a poor translation because it puts in the, it's translated in the causative sense which should be in the permissive sense. God's not the one that's making Egypt sick. Sickness is in the earth not because God put it there. Sickness is in the earth because of disobedience the broken commandment of God in the Garden of Eden. Egypt has no covenant. They have no way to escape the, the, uh, uh, the sickness that's in the world. They don't have God on their side. And so they're subject to everything because they're pagan, uh, pagans and idol worshipers. But notice how God identifies himself. The last phrase of verse 26. For I am the Lord that healeth Thee. Now, the word healeth is interesting because it's in, a, it's in a form that means past and present and future. Now, there's a specific word that could be used if he's talking past tense only. A specific word that could be used if he's talking present tense only. A specific word that could be used if he's talking to the future. But the fact that he uses past, present, and future certainly identifies that he's saying, I am your healer from this point forward, just like I healed the waters. I'll heal you when you have need of sickness. And thank God that's an eternal tense that's used, which means God would be so forever throughout eternity. But why would he use past tense? How would God be able to identify himself as the one that healed them in the past if healing did not come through the Passover lamb? It's impossible. No way possible. As I said, there are words that could be used that could have omitted the past. But the fact that God included it tells us that he's already done a healing work among them. Now, again, the question is the same. Why would God want them to have healing for the strength of their journey to walk to the promised land and not want you to have strength for your journey in your Christian walk, your daily life? That would make him a respecter of persons if he wanted it for them and not for you, wouldn't he? But God is no respecter of persons. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I wonder what kind of situations were healed through the eating of the Passover. You got some folks that are old and infirmed on their last leg, so to speak. But when the time comes for everybody to break camp and take off in the next morning, there's not one feeble person among them. That shows God's attitude, God's intent, God's will, plan, and purpose for how you should walk into salvation and how you should maintain the salvation experience with silver and gold and not one feeble among us. It sounds a lot like what James asked in James chapter 5. When he wrote to the church and he says, is any sick among you? The implication is there shouldn't be. Now that would not be possible except that Jesus paid the price for sickness just at the same time that he paid the price for sin on the cross. Is any sick among you? And then he gives instruction on what to do. God is no respecter of persons, folks. There should not be one shadow of a doubt for you or for me, or for any believer about God's will to heal. F.F. Bosworth used to say this, if you're going to doubt something, doubt your doubts. I like that. That's a good practice. Doubt your doubts and believe God's word. Because that's the only work, the only power, the only attack that the devil's got is to question the truthfulness of God's word. And heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never fail. Say this after me. I believe God. 
I believe that God is no respecter of persons. What he's done for one, he's done for all. Jesus died on the cross for all of mankind. He paid the price for sin. He paid the price for poverty. And he paid the price for sickness. Jesus paid the price for my sins, my poverty, and my sickness. Therefore, with his stripes, I am healed. Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. God is no respecter of persons, but anybody that fears him, anybody that meets God's conditions, God accepts. Healing belongs to you. Healing belongs to everyone in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Forgive us, Lord, for having listened to the devil in times past. But we're done with that. Because we see of a truth and for a surety that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world and the salvation that he accomplished was not only to pay the price for spiritual death, sin, poverty, but also sickness. Thank you, Father, that healing belongs to us, each and every one of us, and that healing is easily within our reach simply by believing and acting on your word. Therefore, we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We'll continue to make our profession, refuse to turn loose of it. And we thank you, Father, that there's no power that the devil has that can stop it from being a reality in our lives because your word is always true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.